0: On behalf of Leinberg Information Services, this is Bob Keebler. Joining us today is Jonathan Blockmacher. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning, Bob. Jonathan, we're all well aware by now that on March 2, 2015, White House Press Secretary Josh Earnest acknowledged that the administration is contemplating certain executive actions or perhaps regulatory actions to increase taxes. Some members of Congress, including Bernie Sanders, have expressed to the President that you should go ahead and do this without Congress. And, of course, Senator Sanders outlined six specific steps. Two of these steps are important to estate planners. One, the elimination of the carried interest preference, and also um, the elimination or modification of valuation adjustments on closely held business entities. Jonathan, under what authority would the administration have to either issue regulations or executive orders on these issues? Well, Bob, that's a great question, and it may be somewhat shocking
1: to people to think that the president can go ahead and take action, say, for example, to basically change the tax law without going to Congress. One of the things that the Constitution provides, essentially, is that all tax measures have to begin in the House of Representatives, not the Senate. Senate, of course, is a Senate Finance Committee, but really everything is supposed to start in the House of Representatives. So with a constitutional limitation like that, How can the executive, the president, go ahead and change it? And that relates, Bob, to the power which has been granted by Congress to the president to issue regulations. Now, there are a couple of types of regulations. One are what are known as interpretive regulations. These basically flesh out what apparently Congress intended. And very often, as everyone knows, the regulations may be literally dozens of times longer than the provision of the code, but they give that authority to basically do that. In fact, that's in the Internal Revenue Service itself. It doesn't mean that every time Congress passes or makes a change to the tax law that it has to say, and oh, by the way, Uh, Mr. President, through your Treasury Department, remember the Treasury is part of the Executive Branch, it works for the President, you go ahead and come out with interpretive regulations telling us what that means. The other kind of regulation is known as a regulatory regulation, and that basically means that the Executive is given the power to basically issue not just interpretive, but something to carry out the purposes of the section. Now, this all begins in 1984 with a very important case known as Chevron versus the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. And in that case, the Supreme Court ruled that federal courts must give deference. It must accept as proper any regulation issued by the executive branch unless they find that it's, quote, arbitrary and capricious, close quote. And that's an Very, very difficult standard to meet, and that's been reiterated in virtually all federal laws. This obviously came under the Environmental Protection Act, but it's been extended basically to the tax field. And recently, the Supreme Court has indicated that it is not going to distinguish between interpretive regulations and regulatory regulations, basically giving the power to really expand what's in the code itself in order to accomplish what was trying to be accomplished. So you now have the executive branch with tremendous regulatory power, which the courts must uphold unless it finds that the regulation is arbitrary and capricious, and that's a very difficult standard for a taxpayer to overcome so that's where the matter begins and that's basically bob the power that the president will use now let me point out there are a lot of people who don't like barack obama and think any regulation that he issues is bad in fact you've seen this in the case recently a lot of publicity with respect to immigration matters there were also a lot of people who didn't like george w bush and they didn't want like what he did with his regulatory power in in fact i'll give you one example Up in Tustamina Lake in Alaska, Bill Clinton put in a regulation that prohibited certain fish farming activities in that body of water, which I believe is the second largest lake in the state of Alaska. George W. Bush, when he became president, reversed it and said, nope, you can have those farming things in there, it's okay, it doesn't violate the Clean Waters Act or any other federal statute. Well, guess what? When Barack Obama became president in 2009, he reversed it, so those fish farming activities are again unlawful under the regulation. And in each circumstance, the federal courts upheld the regulation. Even though they were exactly the opposite, they went from one to two back to one, or yes to no to yes, or no to yes to no. In each case, the court upheld it, even though they were exactly the opposite, because the executive action was not regarded as uh, just violative of being, you know, uh, it just couldn't be justified uh, under the standard that I mentioned before. So uh, unless it violates the standard, the courts must uphold it, and there will be great deference given to what the executive does. Now, you may not like that, but basically that's what the Supreme Court has said is the stated law we could go on for two hours about whether or not that's really an unconstitutional grant by the Congress to the executive because it's really watering down the power of the, of the Congress. But the courts have said they can do that. The Congress can delegate its authority to the president. And unless it's, that regulation is arbitrary and capricious, which is a very, very high standard to meet, you can go ahead and do it. Now, Bob, I realize that's a lot of background, but I want people to understand this really could happen. So let's go on from there, Bob.
0: Well, Jonathan, let's, let's get very granular. Under 2704B4, and I'll read this, it reads, a secretary may, by regulations, provide that other restrictions shall be disregarded in determining the transfer of any interest in a corporation or partnership to a member of the transfer's family. If such restriction has the effect of reducing the value of the transferred interest for purposes of this subtitle, but does not ultimately reduce the value of such interest to the transferee. So Jonathan, for first, when you say that when the law says the Secretary may, stopping right there, that is a legislative, not an interpretive regulation, correct? That is
1: exactly right, Bob. It's legislative, which means, uh, again, there used to be a distinction between these legislative regulations of the type you just read under 2704-D and just interpretive regs, where they always had the authority under the code, granted by Congress, to issue basically what did we really need, providing more guidance, which lawyers and accountants and taxpayers actually want and like. But this is a legislative regulation. And, uh, again, it varies from time to time depending upon the mood of the Supreme Court, it seems. Right now, they say there's no distinction, but even if they go back to a distinction, barring something unusual, it appears that it's highly, highly probable that the courts would uphold almost anything under a legislative regulation of the type you just read under Section 2704D.
0: So, Jonathan, if you were asked to draft this, how would you approach reducing marketability and minority interest discounts, lack of control discounts, voting discounts in the context of a family business? Well, Bob, uh, uh
1: what probably if I were charged with writing it, um I think I would look at some of the proposed bills that have been put in and there have been a number of bills which essentially say the following thing. Unless it is an enterprise that actually conducts an active trader business. Like Bob, you and your son start, let's say, a car dealership, and you own half, and your son owns half, or maybe you get a sibling of yours involved and you each own a third, and you're actually operating a business. And for example, if it's your sister Bob, she's going to care about her family, you're going to care about yours, and even though you adore your son, he has his own family, and he may care more about them than he does about you and his mother. But that means that there's a real tension in the operating the business. It's not that, well we're going to dress this up as a holding company, the traditional family partnership or family LLC. And the burden will be, I believe, on the taxpayer to establish that there is an actual business operated. This might be something similar to Bob of the rule under Section 6166, which allows (laughs) that portion of the estate tax attributable to an Active trader business, which meets certain other tests, to be paid for almost 15 years after the taxpayer dies, as opposed to nine months after death. So that's probably what would be done. They'd put in a rule to say, unless you can establish that this is an active trader business, and they may have a requirement for it's got to be an active trader business and in existence for five years or ten years prior to the death of one of the owners, or five years or ten years before a gift is made. They will simply ignore it and value the underlying assets as though it did not exist. Now, that in turn, mob raised a constitutional question. The Constitution prohibits the federal government from imposing a direct tax on property. The, probably the reason that the founding fathers and mothers did that was to prevent the federal government from imposing a real estate tax. But the Supreme Court has said, no, it's even broader and they've said that the estate tax is not a direct tax because it is on the transfer of the property. That begs the question that if I'm transferring an interest, say, in a partnership, can the IRS have a rule which says, indeed, can Congress have a rule, we'll say, well, we know you're transferring interest in the partnership, but we're not going to transfer that. We're going to tax the underlying assets. Does that make it a direct tax? So That's an issue right now, but I think if the federal government passed a statute or if the executive passed a regulation saying we're going to ignore lack of control, fractionalization, marketability discounts for any entity unless the entity operates an active trader business, which might be measured by how much business they do in the public, it might also exclude brokerage firms. Because if you have a wealthy family like you, Bob, where you have hundreds of millions of marketable securities, you might say, "Well, we're just forming, you know, an asset management company." And yeah, we've gotten, you know, Jonathan Blotmacher to put in ten thousand dollars, and we've gotten Howard Zeritsky to put in twenty thousand, and Steve Leinberg to put in fifty thousand. So see, we're a real operating business. So they might require a certain minimum amount of your business be done with third parties. Lawyers and accountants obviously will try to work around and find loopholes in it. But I think for the vast majority of people, if this passes, the use of family partnerships, the use of discounting by creating fractional interest will largely dissipate and they'll have to use other techniques. But Bob, as you know, there are other things that are being considered which would also reduce the ability to do it. For example, it's been proposed recently that if you do a grant or retained annuity trust at GRAT, the value of the remainder would have to be at least 20% of the amount transferred, so there'd be a gift of at least 25%. In addition, there's a proposal that if you make a sale, which would include perhaps a transfer to a trust and taking back an annuity at GRAT, that if it's to a grantor trust that when you die, the property would be includable back in your estate, reduced only by dollar for dollar what you were paid. Or, for example, with a grant, only dollar for dollar for the actual value of the annuity. So if the assets grow in value, you can't get them out of your estate. Basically, what they're trying to do is to say, if you have something which has full value today, you're either going to pay gift tax or estate tax on it at some time. And that's something also that the executive might consider doing, perhaps under Section 2704 or perhaps under some other provision of the Internal Revenue
0: Code. So, Jonathan, how do we handicap this? I mean, if you're just like 99% of us, you're a practitioner, you have real clients, um, these real clients are wealthy, uh, they haven't maybe moved 100% of their business yet yet, What do we do? Do we brief our clients? Do we wait for the government to do something? And if the government does something, am I right that most regulations take 30 days after publication to become effective?
1: Well, sometimes, Bob, that's a good question. On the latter, some regulations say they're effective immediately, even if they're in proposed form. There is a provision relating to annuities that was issued, oh my gosh, I think in 2007, which said this is only a proposed reg, but when it's adopted in final form, it will be retroactive to this date, which is the date the proposed reg first showed up in the Federal Register. I think the federal government probably would give some warning, you can't be sure, And there are political issues. I'm under the impression that the Treasury has already written fairly broad regulations under Section 2704, but it's hesitated to do anything because it wants to see if the Congress and the President can get together and come up with some rules. There's always a question of balance, Bob. On the one hand, if you make a transfer and then the gift and estate tax is repealed, um, you know that that you might feel gee i was a jerk they got rid of the estate tax i never should have done this i mean you can imagine people who made gifts when the gift tax rates as they were uh, before george bush became the president at 55 percent with only approximately a six hundred thousand dollar estate tax exemption people made gifts and paid gift tax they might feel like jerks now because the top rate is only 40 percent and the exemption is now almost five and a half million dollars So it can be a two-edged sword. Do I do something because I want to lock in the benefits I can get today, for example, by discounts and valuation, or do I want to wait and hope and expect that the rates will go down, even if discounts are taken away? And that's a political matter, Bob, and it's very, very hard to forecast. I mean, you can tell that, you know, things that happen almost every month causes great swings in the Washington politics. But the one thing, Bob, I will say, everything in Washington is for sale. It's only a question of price. If the Democrats want a fifteen dollar say minimum wage throughout the entire country, they can get it get it if they give the Republicans something that the Republicans want, and vice versa. It's very, very hard to know, especially because and I'm being a little bit cynical, Every congressperson, every senator is going to look at what's in his or her best interest. Maybe not what's the best for their constituents. Maybe not the best for the country. But it's what's in his or her best interest. It's the ability to be reelected or get their chosen successor to be elected. And that's very, very difficult to forecast because it depends very much on the individual's own view of what's happening now and what will happen in the future. So, Bob, one of the things is I think that if people can make transfers using discounts and under the $5.43 uh, million exemption now, that may be an inappropriate action to take. In fact, you know, people had made those transfers in 2011 and 2012 under the expectation that the big exemptions were going to go away. Well, I now know people who are regretting that because they said, gee, I'm never going to have an estate that big. I never would have made these transfers. Among other things, I've given up the benefit and the control of the property, which I don't want. And and also, my family's going to miss out on a tax-free step-up in basis when I die. And one of the proposals, Bob, that's being considered, I hope everybody has his or her seatbelt on, is there's even talk about no tax-free step-up in basis if there's no estate tax paid. So if I die with an estate of $5 million, I've never made any gifts, I'm not going to pay any estate tax, why should I get a step-up in basis? Or for your wife, Bob, with your $80 million of highly appreciated assets, if you die and leave it to your wife under the protection of the marital deduction, no estate tax paid, maybe she won't enjoy a tax-free step-up in basis. And again, these are things that can be politically debated. all depends upon trade-offs when the republicans and democrats get together and they negotiate with the president and that doesn't matter whether they're democrats or republicans in the white house or democrats or republicans who control the congress and it's very very difficult to forecast but i think people who can transfer under the 5.43 million dollar exemption right now and who can garner significant discounts with planning should seriously consider taking that if they can afford to give up the benefits and the control of those assets.
0: Jonathan, this has been a very powerful podcast. On behalf of Leinberg Information Services, uh, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much, Bob, for having me.
0: Goodbye.